There is a really great docu-series on Netflix that I highly recommend. It's called How to Become a Tyrant, and it's all about the process by which men use to become tyrants over people. It's very good. However, I will tell you this. It does focus solely on the modern era. In fact, it only makes one reference to ancient tyrannies. And in doing so, it it actually says, the, the actual narration is, oh, wait, that's too ancient for you? Well, here's this modern guy that did the same thing. And that's literally the only homage it pays to ancient tyrannies, to things that happened long ago. That's unfortunate, but it is a very good series, and it does give us some pretty good insight into it. There's six episodes, and it lays out the playbook for becoming a tyrant. You got to do things like number one, you seize power, and you know, gaining power is is really the hard part. But then once you gain power, what do you do? Well, you have to crush your rivals. You have to reign through terror. You have to control the truth. You have to create a new society. And you have to try to rule forever. These are the steps to becoming a successful tyrant, as it were. Now, this idea of tyranny is strange to us, and yet at the same time, it's one of those things that we... In so many ways, we take it for granted. What is a tyranny? Who is a tyrant? And of course, if you watch this series, they'll give you people like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, uh, Kim Il-sung, Mao, uh, Baby Doc Duvalier, uh, some of the more uh, well-known ones, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, so forth and so on. And even though they give you a dictionary definition of what tyranny is, They also say, that's too simple. There's more to it than that. But when we today say the word tyrant, we tend to think of an individual, and we tend to think of a despotic, violent government that is hell-bent on murdering people. That tends to be what we think about. But is that the impression that someone of the 1780s, late 1787, 1788, an anti-federalist would have had? Is that, is that what they would have seen that as? And the answer is obviously no. In the Declaration of Independence, we read these words, quote, The history of the present king of Great Britain, that would be George III, is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states, unquote. Well, is that what they actually had in King George, the history of King George? 
They go on to, decide, to, to, to use this words, this sentence, sorry. Quote, a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people, unquote. Well, duh. I mean, tyrants don't rule over free people, do they? At least not in our understanding today they don't. Anybody that's under a tyrant today is living in a dictatorship, and they are not free. But we saw ourselves as a free people, and we defined King George III as a tyrant. What did we see in King George III that made him a tyrant? Well, we had a list of 27 specific things that he did, and if you go read the Declaration of Independence, you will see those. And they are, in many cases, very strong accusations and very much the things that tyrants would do. Even if you went to the Netflix docuseries, you would see on that list things that tyrants do. And so in that sense, we can kind of connect with that and go, well, maybe he was a tyrant. Of course, the problem is the rest of the world doesn't see George III as a tyrant. You understand that. George III is seen in English history as being a very sympathetic king a very good king, a very caring king, one who cared greatly for his people. He was unfortunate in the sense that he had an illness that caused him to lose control of his mind. It was not the mental illness, it was an actual physical illness that would cause him to lose his mind at times. But in general, he's seen by most of the world as a very good king, much like Herod the Great by most of the world is seen, and most of history is seen as a, a pretty typical average ruler of, of the first century B.C. It's only in the Western traditions that we see him as a tyrant. And why is that? Well, because we've been conditioned to think that he is or was. He's dead, so there you go. The understanding that Americans in that era would have had of a tyrant was pre-modern, obviously, so they wouldn't have known about Adolf Hitler, they wouldn't have known about Joseph Stalin or Charon Mao or any of those things. They had some interesting ideas along the way in the, the history of Europe, but nothing like we've really seen, I don't, I don't think. Maybe, but not seriously in that, in that vein. But their understanding would, of course, been shaped by their understanding of history, which, as I've said numerous times, is steeped, and I do mean steeped, in Roman history. I don't think I can explain to you enough, or strongly enough, how deeply ingrained in Americans Roman history was. There's a reason why so many of our institutions, so much of our architecture, is classical Roman. We saw ourselves as the ideological descendants of the Roman Republic with the same attitudes and the same mindsets about defending republicanism and liberty that we saw in the ancient Romans. In Rome, tyrant and tyranny has a different connotation, and you need to understand that, than perhaps what we have today. We tend to conflate the term dictatorship and tyranny. We, we see them as the same thing. Adolf Hitler was a dictator, and he was a tyrant. Joseph Stalin was a dictator, he was a tyrant. 
Kim Il-sung, dictator, tyrant, so forth and so on. But you have to understand that in Roman thought, and consequently in American thought of the 1780s, dictators are not the same thing as tyrants. In fact, dictators are a necessary evil, a necessary consequence of republican forms of government. And while they are not in and of themselves tyrants, they contain in them, in themselves as dictators, they contain the seed that could bloom into tyranny were it not carefully controlled. Dictators were chosen by the Romans for very specific purposes. They were voluntary, and they were chosen by the people for specific reasons. You can contrast that a little bit, I guess, if you wanted to, to the way that Adolf Hitler becomes chancellor in 1933. He was chosen because we had a specific set of circumstances that needed to be addressed, and no one else could do it. In the same way, or in a similar way, I guess, dictators in ancient Rome were chosen to deal with specific issues, military emergencies. Oh, we've got a problem. You know, we need to, we get, Hannibal's coming down with elephants. Somebody's got to stop him. There was a situation in which a dictator could oversee and supervise elections, particularly when the consuls, and remember there were two consuls every year, had failed to do so or were unable to do so or unwilling to do so. So if the consuls didn't get their jobs done, the people, the Senate, could appoint a dictator to oversee just the elections. That's your job, Get the and you have dictatorial authority, get these elections done. That's one, those are two of them. Other ones involve, other issues involved uh, important religious rights. If there was something beyond the norm that needed to be done to propitiate the gods, a dictator could be appointed for the specific purpose of performing a religious rite. Uh, conversely, they might have to do, establish a, a, a religious holiday. What if we need a new holiday? We discovered a new god, you know, Fred, Frederick, the god of fabric, and we need a specific religious holiday. We appoint a dictator to oversee the establishment of that religious holiday, and that's what he's supposed to do. There were things like holding games. What if the consuls or whoever was supposed to, the Quaestor, didn't hold the games properly? A dictator could be appointed to conduct the games. And again, very specific details, very specific rules about what he was supposed to do, and he was not to exceed that. There was also the issue of quelling sedition. If there was a outbreak, an outbreak of sedition in, in Rome, they could appoint a dictator, Senate and the people could appoint a dictator, for the sole purpose of quelling that sedition. That's your job, get rid of this seditious thought, these people, handle it, and that's it. And of course, there was one extraordinary case where a dictator was appointed to reconstitute the Senate because after the Battle of Cannae, the Roman Republic was in, you know, dire straits, probably the most dire straits it was ever in. And so they needed somebody to run things. Please appoint a new Senate while you're at it. The general idea here is that dictators are a necessary danger to a republic. They are necessary because there are times when a Senate 
the people can't react, can't control things, can't get organized enough. Hmm. Do we hear an echo of that perhaps in the presidency as you know, put into the Constitution? There are times when this Congress and the state legislatures may not be able to act quickly enough. We need a chief executive or perhaps dictator to carry on those actions. It's possible we could see a similarity there. The difference, of course, is that the dictator of the Roman era versus the dictator of the modern era is that the dictator of the Roman era, and as understood by our framers, founders, and anti-federalists, were strictly controlled by laws and traditions. The law said, you, this is your mandate, you do these things, you do not go beyond that. And if you do go beyond that, you will be relieved of your duties as dictator. Furthermore, because the dictator has within them the possibility, the very real possibility of usurping the republic, exceeding their mandate, and becoming a tyrant, if you exceed your mandate, we're going to call you a tyrant, and we are going to kill you. This was the oath of Brutus. Remember, going all the way back to Publius and Brutus, this was the idea. If you violate your mandate, exceed your mandate, we will kill you. It is the duty of every Roman to do that. This is really the entire story, in many ways, of Julius Caesar and his assassination. What you need to understand is that Caesar has followed the playbook of how to become a tyrant. He has seized power. He has done, he has, uh, you know, essentially crushed his rivals. He's, you know, Pompey and the others have left the city. He is sort of reigning through terror, but it's a different kind of terror. He's, 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 he's doing something that to a Roman is terrible, terrifying. He's offering clemency. And, and I know that sounds weird to us, but our world is different. In Rome, to offer, when a leader offers clemency, if you accept that clemency, you are accepting his leadership. You are saying, yes, he is Lord over us. And that's terrifying to most Romans. He, of course, controls the truth. What story is getting out? He says he's trying to create a new society by revamping, realigning, re-whatever, re-energizing the Republic, and he plans to rule forever. He names his heirs. He, he makes sure that there are plans here. This is the Julius Caesar that has become the tyrant. He has exceeded his mandate as dictator and has begun to do these things. The Republicans, Brutus, Cass, uh, Cato, Cicero, Pompey to a degree, they see this and they recognize it for what it is. But the people of Rome... And this is part of the thing that we, we sometimes we, we forget about. The people of Rome pretty much adored Julius Caesar. In fact, in Mark Antony's speech at the funeral of Julius Caesar, he reminds them of how generous and loving Caesar has been to the people. Look at these gifts that he has bestowed upon you. How can this be a tyrant? How can this be evil? Look at what he's done for you. Of course, Mark Antony never addresses the issues of liberty. He never addresses the issues of what the dictator is supposed to do. He simply points out the fact that Julius Caesar has bought and paid for you, and you should be loyal to him. 
The Republicans saw a very long-range danger of Julius Caesar and what he was trying to do. And so, in keeping with Roman tradition and what they believed to be Roman law and was, they assassinated him. It backfired because, well, there's a lot of reasons, and we could spend a lot of time getting lost in those, but in essence because they failed to gain the support of the people. And Caesar, and eventually Octavian, Augustus, would have that support. When it comes to King George, we have 27 specific reasons why we claim that King George III is unfit to rule over a free people, which we have decided we are. We are, you know, again, we're like the Romans of ancient times. We are free people. And George III has committed these 27 specific acts. I'm not going to go through them. If you want to look them up in the Declaration of Independence, you can. This makes him unfit to rule over a free people because he is attempting to establish a tyranny here in these, three, in these 13 colonies. The Anti-Federalists, likewise, over and over again, have a deep fear that the Constitution, as proposed, will allow a dictator, president, to become a tyranny. How so? Not only could it be a man who is tyrannical in nature in the first place, but no man rules alone. See, this is something we, we forget a lot. We think that it's just one man doing If it was just one man doing it all, it wouldn't last long. He has to have his support. He has to have the government on his side. He has to have the army and the navy on his side. He has to have, he's got to have a coalition that is loyal, specific to him. And the Anti-Federalists see that this Constitution very easily could allow Congress to become, particularly with the way that the president was chosen early on, they see this as very dangerous. These people are going to be in debt to the presidents for putting him there. Will they help him become a tyrant? No man rules alone. The Anti-Federalist view is that Congress and even the courts will enable this tyranny which, of course, is straight out of the playbook, how to become a tyrant. Take care of your supporters. <laughs> Make sure your people you know, are loyal to you. They're terrified of this. That's why they refer to Washington and, and the presidency in general as being the American Fabius. Sure, you bring him in for an emergency situation, and when Congress is out of session, the president can act. But how far is he going to go? And if he goes too far, <laughs> you know, What's our law and tradition going to say about that? It makes you wonder if the founders were right about George III. I think that by the definition of a Roman tyrant, it cl they clearly were. King George III, for whatever reason, had a specific position towards the colonies that he didn't necessarily have to the rest of the empire. And perhaps it was, you know, a personal thing where he got insulted or whatever, and so he decided he was going to use the power of Parliament and the power of the, the, the Crown to squash them. In fact, that's what he said. Maybe to that degree, by the Roman definition, he is clearly a tyrant. By our definitions today of what a tyranny is, I don't think he fits that definition. And moreover, there are even books out there about how much better we would have been off if we had just 
which has stayed as part of this. The bigger question is, did the framers do enough to prevent a dictator, a president, from becoming a tyranny? Now, this is the anti-federalist position that this is, this is too dangerous. This is too powerful. This is too likely to become a tyranny. It's too easy. The, the, the slippery slope is there. Did the framers do enough in the Constitution to prevent that? We might argue today that they did. Those of us that are, you know, constitutionalists, strict constitutionalists, might argue about, you know, presidential authority and presidential power and where it can go and how it can't go. But then we look at what has happened, particularly in the last hundred years, with the delegation of congressional authority to the executive branch. And we might come up with a different answer to that question. Did, did the framers do enough to prevent a tyranny? Did Congress, has Congress in the last hundred years done enough to prevent a tyranny? Or have they been complicit in it? Really, I hate to say it, but the only way to really answer that question about whether or not our presidency, our Roman dictator, is slipping into a tyranny or not, is to turn on the news today and tell me what you see. Do you see a leader limited by law and tradition, not able to exceed his authority and mandates? Or do you see a leader who believes that with a phone and a pen, they can do whatever they want? So you might not like that answer. The Anti-Federalists may very well have been right about too powerful of a presidency, and allowing Congress has allowed it to happen. And we, the citizenry, have said, eh, the president loves us. Look at all the stuff he's giving us. Isn't that great? And we get mad at the people who point out the fact that he is crossing his mandate. Is that a lesson we should have learned from history? <laughs> Probably. Probably.